we have overcome software issues, scheduling issues, construction issues, etc. to finally get around to yeah. recording this. 40 minutes past the time when I said we were going to start. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Whenever I hear you read that last line, I'm always like, damn, I need to go and create something. <laughs> to continue on what Sharice said, making it up is an exercise for us in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity for us to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we're just working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us via Patreon at patreon.com slash making. Let's get into it. Bump, bada bump. This week, my subject comes courtesy of David C., from the Discord, I was having a debate with myself about what subject I wanted to pick for this week. David swooped in on Discord and shared a link to this Toby Shoren article on subpixel space, and I went for that. I just threw away all the other things I was considering, and I was like, let's do this fresh article. So it's called Come for the Network, Pay for the Tool. And essentially, it's about paid communities. That's the really quick summary. It's about paid community spaces. But it is really well written, as with everything that Toby Shoren writes and that we've talked about. It's quite a long piece, and he really takes the time to break things down. So whenever we talk about it is usually like a summary, things are left out. It's worth going into. For people that are unfamiliar with Toby's work, can you give him maybe 30 seconds of your time and give Toby some love? Okay. How did it, I came across... I came across Toby's work. Yeah, Toby's someone yeah, that Toby's we've actually talked to before. We've we've talked to, yeah. both of us have talked to. I came across his work as his writing. And so I think of him that way first as a writer, as a thinker who then articulates those thoughts in writing. He is also a designer and leads strategy and research at Other Internet. So that's kind of his day job. But where both of us are more familiar with him is Subpixel Space, which is this long form thinking platform where he really articulates interesting ideas and models for media and commerce. And many of the things that he talks about are things that Eugene and I talk about in private. And then he writes well-written articles about it, whereas Eugene and I just talk about it live because we're, we're lazier people, really. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> Toby Shorn's great. In our private communications, he's equally as thoughtful, um, probably more so because it's private when one-to-one communication. So I'm excited about this piece because as David C. said when he shared it on Discord, it's kind of meta because it definitely describes a lot of things about like where Macon is at. Shoren opens the piece with the description of kind of media right now. Advertising spending is going up, but is not really having the effect that advertisers want it to have. Brand content is super saturated and audiences are really becoming disenchanted with social media platforms. Um, and we're seeing that. And so he poses the question of whether social media content and commerce can relate to each other in a new way. And that enters in the term community, which describes really absolutely everything. And something I liked that he talked about is, you know, corporations also use the term community now and so does marketing yeah a lot a lot and in a lot of cases they use community as marketing lingo to describe things that i guess you could abstractly call com community by a very like dictionary definition but really it's often in that lingo is just about anyone who is like a fan of something. Shoren puts forward a definition of community that is drawn from these theorists, I'm going to say this wrong, two theorists, Etienne and Beverly Wenger. 
And the quote is, communities of practice are groups of people who share a concern or a passion for something they do and learn how to do it better as they interact regularly. And Shoren says he likes this because it applies to many different groups, but identifies something that groups share, which is that even when we don't know who us is yet, we're all learning how to become who we are. Identity is always about groups and group formation is always about identity formation and both are processes of learning. So I really liked that in thinking about our making community and trying to be honest with ourselves when we use the term community, whether that's like an accurate description of what we have and like what we're fostering. But to press on with the piece, um, Shorin talks about how different ways content social and commerce overlap so have you seen the venn diagram okay yeah, so let's look at the venn diagram right now right and so it's like three circles content social commerce and content is for people who are not looking at the venn diagram content is news small media new york times for example social is things like twitter instagram facebook commerce is you know direct to consumer traditional brands um and then he breaks down how those different bubbles overlap. So like content and social is like Twitch streamers, social and commerce is Instagram micro brands, content and commerce is like our old working place hype beast. And then when all three come together, that's like a paid community. So I guess to throw it to you, like when I saw this chart, it kind of, I thought it was a good description of something already in my head. And I was wondering if you felt the same way. Before we get into it, do you think that we've fully fleshed out what community means and like where it, what it could be? Like, or is there anything that you felt was un, unrepresented or misrepresented mm, in this? I think the thing I thought it was pretty straightforward. I just wonder if the only thing I thought was missing was maybe like I don't know, gaming's not really in there, but maybe it just sort of gets wrapped up into something well, else. Well, right? I think the key thing is regular interaction with each other so community has to be people in that community who just talk to each other and don't talk to the brand or the content creator does that make sense so like if you just talk to so if everyone in our making community only talked to you eugene that wouldn't be a community it would just be people who are fans of eugene Customer service. It'd be like customer service, kind of. Eugene's personal customer service. It'd be like Eugene as concierge. So a community has to be where individuals just interact with one another regularly. And I think interaction, this is something Shoren goes into, interaction a lot of times because of the platforms we use looks like chat, looks like text messaging, but it doesn't have to be that. We're kind of like restricted actually by the software and platforms that we use when it could be like you're saying it could be gaming that is the interaction or it could be i don't know coding mm-hmm. together that is the interaction but there's just not a lot of spaces there there aren't off the shelf solutions to like offer those types of interactions yeah i mean i think ultimately it's quite clear what it is it's basically all quite straightforward and clear i think they've hit like probably 90 eight percent of every instance where you would have sort of this community interaction so a paid community when it's not just a community period a paid community is like free content with a subscription paywall to access more and then the more in this description of a paid community is a digital social space for ongoing user interaction and that is exactly what make it is right now we provide free content Mm -hmm. available to everyone on the site articles podcasts this podcast and then there is a subscription paywall for something more and right now that something more is our discord for ongoing user interaction and it's not just the discord but that i would argue is the main thing that people come for right and something i liked again from this article is where he says community is also something that generates its own discussion and users actually comprise the value in and of themselves and they wind up reshaping the brand or content development process i know so that's something that you're really interested in as well it's like how can we involve the community mm-hmm. more in 
making brand and content. Yeah, I think that it's quite clear. I think what's interesting is that pre-community monetization, the way that you thought you would monetize people is through content. And I think now you're starting to see the shift and it's not even seeing the start. It's more so that you're understanding that what people are more willing to pay for Mm -hmm. is interaction and is actually less tangible. Even though digital content is intangible in a way, it's still like they don't really care about how many stories Mm -hmm. you're getting, right? It's more about the emotional resonance of having an interesting conversation. Or being like sparked by some sort of uh, curiosity out of the Hello? blue, where I'm just like, oh, I pop into Discord and like someone sends a really interesting article, like basically how you came across this piece, right? Yeah, but isn't it so interesting how you know we discovered that people aren't very willing to pay for the intangible of digital content, but actually, community is even more intangible. But people have been proven to be willing to pay for that. Correct. But I think the reason why is that content is very much commodified mm-hmm. but i think interactions in community are so different right i think that the the way that they're interactive actually significantly increases their value mm-hmm. in terms of like things to do digitally yeah one thing that we're kind of talking about that shorin also talks about when he talks about the future of these paid communities is as brands and companies realize that what they're selling is community how are people being careful of not monetizing community the same way that they do content because we're talking we're talking about different type of product now right we're talking about real people like when we say community it it's kind of like a convenient way to also forget that we're talking about like lots of individuals coming together a bad route that this could go is where brands and companies, you know, start up paid communities, but then ultimately use those paying community members as like a means for further monetization. It very transparently, like, I think this is where we envision making going at some point down the line. Like, I think that essentially any media company now has like a handful of things. And they're throwing it at the wall to see what sticks because not every single sort of media brand or company can succeed at everything, especially given the fact that a lot of these things are resource intensive, right? So you could try to monetize Mm -hmm. content through a pure subscription. You could try to do the merchandise play. You can try to monetize through a paid community. But I think through independent media companies, it's like, you kind of have to pick and choose where you think you're Sorry, I don't be. mean that we can't make money off of paying community members because that is how a lot of currently, like Stratechery, for example, right? Like that's quite a commonly known paid mm-hmm. community uh, can survive. What I meant is that maybe I should just quote directly from him. So this is a quote from the piece and I think of it as a reminder to ourselves Shoran writes, one of Web 2.0's most crucial lessons is that extractive business models cannot be masked by marketing for very long. This is doubly true when the community itself is part of what people are paying for. Users will quickly turn on network operators if they sense hypocrisy or are given no voice in the development of the service. I am least optimistic about the prospects of paid social networks run by large corporations, brands, and IP holders. I'm going to fast forward. Earlier in this piece, I voiced a similar skepticism of so-called brand communities in which the members are often quite transparently viewed as free marketing resources. I expect many projects along these lines to end with multiple rounds of community frustration, exit, and further monetization. So that's what I meant. Not that you can't monetize community as in something that people pay for and that you earn money from and therefore can be profitable and sustainable, but monetization in a way where you are using let's say that paid community as data points for um i don't mm-hmm. know to, it to, and you sell that to a sneaker company that's yeah. kind of what i mean in terms of like something to be cautious of well yeah i mean privacy is definitely one thing it's it's interesting because i've the sale of individual data is something that i wouldn't say i don't understand but i've always i've yet to see like in the clearest terms how it 
manifest itself through like direct sales. And it's not that I deny it. It's more like I'd be interested to know like how impactful it actually oh. is. I mean, obviously Facebook as a company is built off of it, but it's like, you know, just to kind of lay, provide an option. What happens if like, hey, you're a brand and like your sales were like, you know, up 50% after you received the right mm-hmm. data. You know what I mean? I'm trying mm-hmm, to understand mm-hmm. that. Um, maybe that's a bit of a side, but... I mean, sorry, go ahead. No, the one thing I wanted to also ask you is that what happens when so much of the conversation and quality of conversation is happening behind closed doors and paid communities. Yeah. Because the reason I bring this up is that you remember like in some of the previous Making It Ups, we've discussed a little bit around the loss of interaction on, in the everyday when we no longer have to commute, when we're no longer in these shared mm-hmm. public spaces because everyone is sort of in their mm-hmm. own lane. You know, they, they leave their house, their nice apartment building, jump into an Uber, and then they're mm-hmm. at the office. There's no sort of public transportation. All their food is delivered to them. They don't have to go to a supermarket, etc. I'm just curious your thoughts on what we lose if this becomes the new normal of communication. So I have two thoughts. One is about accessibility, which is about, you know, if a community is behind a paywall, what about people who can't pay? And that's why I think there always has to be, and something we try to be cautious also to offer is a a free version. And I've seen a lot of other paid community uh, creators offer that as well. You know, that if if they reach out to the creator and say, hey, I'm a student or I can't afford this and this these are my reasons that I want to be in this, then they just give people like free access. But the other so that's one very easy solution. But the other thing about like being behind a paywall is that you don't have like public review, right? Or like. Like a public. Check on things, and I feel like I talked we talked about this when we talked about, you know, those pieces on every every internet star is like your own star i forget what it was called when we talked about cameo remember Mm -hmm. and we talked about how we're building these spaces that on one hand you know fulfill us emotionally or provide us with um connections that maybe we're missing in our day-to-day workplaces but at the same time we're like closing ourselves off so it's kind of both mm-hmm. i think it's like we can talk about both at the same time like paid communities offer people something that they're lacking but it's also engaging in something dangerous which is that you're yeah. putting yourself in a room and choosing to like stay in that room yeah and the world doesn't have access to yeah. that room so we might say we think yeah. making is like a super healthy community but I'm fully aware that probably there's a paid community out there for white supremacists, you know? And what does that mean? I guess yeah. I, yeah. I just don't really have a, I don't have an answer. I'm like starting to ramble. Please stop me. I mean, I think the thing that I find most interesting about just having a paid layer is that it immediately focuses the conversation and it, we've noticed that it also intensifies the quality of the conversation. And I think that's the one thing that, is interesting because it's like the whole notion of having skin in the game and skin in the game in this sense is the financial aspect like yes right now we have uh sort of a introductory two dollar tier which is obviously multiples less expensive than the the, the tiers we were eventually going to go with mm-hmm. i think it was like a five dollar tier and then currently an eight dollar tier right but i think that what feels good about it is that Ultimately, they given given these unprecedented moments we're going through, it's like it's not even really about that. It's more about like, are you committed? And I think that's the interesting thing that I draw from it. Like, commitment to a membership is actually incredibly powerful. Versus you come in and you you dip in, you dip out. Yeah. Because someone had to physically like make the connection that hey, I'm going to relinquish. You know, whether it's two dollars, five dollars, eight, twenty dollars a month. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think commitment is wonderful, but I think commitment is like, like I said, like double edged sword, right? Like if you commit to this paid community, you're going to spend a lot of time in it. You know, are you balancing out what you're reading? But at the same time, I like question 
uh, how much balancing we need sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was something else about this piece I wanted to talk about, which is that there's this entire section where Shorin talked to his colleagues at Other Internet, and they put forward like this list of other businesses and types of groups of people that could benefit from paid social networks. I thought it was some really interesting, more like ideas that haven't manifested themselves yet, you know, that that could pop up in the future. And it includes like yeah. custom tooling for streamer communities, so like something better than Twitch. What, Twitch is already pretty great, but it's a little bit awkward getting people up onto live stream. So are there smaller alternative networks that might be, you have to subscribe in order to get into it, but then offers like a better experience. Um, and then he also suggests small scale political community organizing or for mutual aid, education and practitioner networks, instead of relying on institutional and already established schools, you know, could groups of independent teachers come together and, share like their uh resources for teaching materials and things like that so i think it's a really interesting list and i agree mm -hmm. like could definitely benefit these groups of people that are probably like hacking instagram and facebook and all of these other social platforms to like do the kind of things that they want to do and sure and suggesting like what if these people had like their own like custom created places to hang out in and like use yeah. tools that benefited them specifically and obviously the question I have that like when this in reading this list is what are the logistics and technological feasibility of making these things happen? Even though he says like, oh, it's really easy now for people to make things. I think that as easy as it is, it's still hard. <laughs> I know that sounds so oxymoronic. Yeah. But yes, there are a lot of tools available for free to creators and anyone can learn to code and have a website up immediately. But if we're talking about like a closed paywall community that has tools specific for what they do, like I actually don't think it's as easy as he is perhaps suggesting. So is that what you're you, you don't think it's as easy? I don't as think says. it's as easy to make as he kind of suggests in this article. Let's go over our own experiences. Yeah. What do you think are the most challenging parts about running a community? The thing that I'm saying isn't easy isn't the community part. The thing that I'm saying isn't easy is making a custom space online. The, the technological Yeah, the technological side. side. Because I think it's super interesting, his section that suggests like, what if there were custom places for specific groups? And one of his examples is Arena which was founded in 2012 is, and is like this indie social network. Some have described as like quotation marks, nerdy Pinterest. Um, so that's an example, mm -hmm. right? But like as lo-fi as Arena could be described as being like compared to like Facebook or Instagram, it's still not like something I'm not capable of like building in my living room. And I think that the number of people who can build it in their living room is not that big. I mean, for me personally, I think that looking too much at the framework is probably the next step after having an idea that has continuity and the legs to continue. Because I think that we've seen that even though Instagram might be a terrible version of where a community can exist, it still exists. Because I think the bonds of the community yeah. overcome the limitations of the technology. So when I think of it, I'm like, there are options out there that aren't ideal, but at, at the same time, like perfection isn't really what people are seeking. They're seeking the human connections, yeah. right? Like, I think that it's maybe overstating the requirements of the tech stack. Yeah. I mean, I think it's exciting to dream about to say like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if you had this kind of group that like, like I said, the teachers, like if you had educators and then they had a tool where they could collaborate on teaching materials, but also that kind of gets in the way of forming the community in the first place. When you could maybe do the same thing with like Discord and Google Docs. Yeah. 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 The one thing that I do recognize is really challenging for any startup or anything that doesn't have a dedicated team surrounding it is documentation. Taking all these interesting insights, all these 
historical things that have happened in the community or in the company and documenting mm -hmm. it i think is actually something that i wish i had spent more time thinking about but it's hard when you're just like a small company right or just starting up like that's not your main focus but i've soon realized how important it is to have some sort of reference point and some sort of foundation to build upon so for a community yeah. it's like you know what are things that happened in the past that can help drive us forward yeah no i agree i mean it's like just having to prioritize that right and also prior we talk about it a lot but prioritizing like the writing down and cataloging of these decisions and this thought process do you think that the way that we treat paid communities will essentially at some point shift gears and people look at that expense as just any sort of entertainment social expense right and what i mean is that you might go and spend you know thirty dollars or fifty dollars for a friday night out do we see a point in time where you just sort of look at digital communities and paid communities as a replacement for it i think it's still actually quite niche like i don't think we're at that netflix point yet where everyone and their parents are willing to pay for uh, for streaming um for their you know television and movie content even though we talk a lot about paid communities actually if i think about my own friend group there's not a lot of people who subscribe to something like Macon. so i i, I think it's possible mm -hmm. but i don't think we're close to where it becomes as normal as streaming I think people still really enjoy in-person communities and actually they probably pay for that too you know like if you pay for football right like if you pay some kind of membership for your team you're also technically paying to be part of that community but I think people do that more regularly than they do the online version but who knows with this pandemic mm -hmm. probably paid communities have been accelerated yeah potentially one way of looking at it is that, so obviously I've been playing Fortnite a bit more recently and I was so adamant about not paying for it. And then Malin gifted me this battle pass. He's like, well, you're going to spend so much time playing it. Why don't you just like make it worth your while? Like have your time spent playing actually go towards something. And it kind of made sense. Cause That's like, so funny in some ways, sort of a similar train of thought on how you look at transactions within this type of space yeah like digital transactions essentially follow yeah. i would say like almost a slightly different approach because i would never second guess potentially buying like i don't know like a piece of clothing because it's just so clear-cut and the experience we have with buying clothing or a product a physical product has been defined probably since the day we were born or ever since we were cognizant of buying stuff but I think now we're just trying to come to terms with how do we approach and think about digital transactions. Yeah, I mean, it, there was an interesting conversation in the Discord a while back about paywalls on news sites. And I don't remember who was having this conversation, but I remember reading it. And for me, when I hit my limit before like the middle of the month in terms of like free articles, that's a sign to me that I should start paying for that site because I'm clearly on it enough that it's going to be worth my time instead of like hitting the limit and then bouncing and then finding something else to read. If I hit my limit, like that's my signal, like, oh, this is something I care about. But I had to like train my brain for who knows how many years now, like four years, five years in order to like reach this point where that's how I think about the transaction. Yeah. Which is an interesting question as well about community. If there is no like unpaid version of the community how do you know that you want to be a part of it i think that that's where the content needs to be sufficiently strong enough that you understand that the topics of interest are happening behind closed doors but at a more profound and deeper mm. level because that's sort of the value of niche right it's like no one around me is talking about this stuff and or they're hard to find mm -hmm. but here's an area where you're amalgamating all the people that have like-minded interests mm -hmm. Well, should we move on? Yep. Let's go over right. to you. My topic this week is Vogue slammed for hiring Annie Leibovitz for 
Simone Biles cover instead of Black Photographer. In Vogue's August issue, they featured Olympic medalist and arguably one of the world's best gymnasts ever, Simone Biles. Well, okay, because Eugene wrote this originally and he wrote arguably world's best gymnast. And I can tell you straight up that she is definitely the current world's best gymnast in terms of ranking. And I think what's arguable is whether she is the best ever in history. Thank you for that. I just happen to... I know the subject is not about Simone Biles as an athlete, but at the very top, I will just say that she is an incredible athlete. Completely unrelated to your subject. I don't want people to think I was disrespecting her so much as that, yeah, it was less about her athletic feats. Although, obviously, she's amazing. Everyone should go like Google some videos of Simone Biles. It's just incredible. Sorry, Eugene, please continue. I'm sorry. She features on the cover of the August issue of Vogue. She was photographed by world-famous photographer Annie Leibovitz. Uh, And immediately once her cover story went live, it faced a ton of backlash for several reasons. Primarily the art direction, because many deemed it unflattering because it didn't accurately highlight her skin tone. Like, it was very dark and muted. And secondly... Uh, it received backlash because of the choice of photographer, because it was a non-black photographer. Some suggested they choose somebody who perhaps had better technical know-how on how to shoot people with darker complexions, darker skin tones. And there actually was some pretty prolific criticism uh, from the New York Times national picture editor Morgan McCarthy, as well as black woman photographer's founder Polly Irungu. And, you know, overall, I think it was less about composition. It's more about, you know, the final outcome and, and the colors. There were people that were eventually sharing their own edits of the piece. They would take the photos and they'd be like, hey, this is actually a super easy edit. This is what you should have done. And honestly, like, if that was the outcome you wanted, like, I use Lightroom Mobile and I like, just hit auto just to see what happens uh, when I let an algorithm decide what the best photo is. And Arguably, like it actually gets you to a, a pretty good point, right? And I've seen it with photos that have been underexposed and whatnot, and it does get you to a certain point. And obviously, there's a ton of bandwidth within digital files these days. I don't know if it's shot on digital or on film, but like there's a ton of bandwidth for you to play around with, especially when it's underexposed because there's more highlights. And with digital files, it's better to underexpose, and with film, it's better to overexpose. Now I'm getting a little bit sidetracked but i don't know now this has become now this has become like a photography software review eugene you should you should focus yeah though i wanted to jump in and really quickly say i did see some criticism as well of the way simone was posed and kind of her clothing and facial expressions as well which i think is a related but different issue like some people some criticism was saying that Simone looks like she was uncomfortable. So maybe we should also talk a little bit about the story in which yeah, she featured it. Because it might paint a, a more clear picture. Uh, some people came to her defense and argued that the artistic direction called for something more somber as it spoke to the impact of the Larry Nazar trial, which included Biles mm-hmm. and her testimony. Yeah, I mean, it's about, basically Biles was yeah. in that trial as a witness. Sorry, we should fact check this. But I think yeah. what we can definitely, what, what the focus is, right, okay, we're not here to talk about the Larry Nassar trial in detail, but the thing that is pertinent is that the article, was, which is a long article since it's the cover story, is about Biles' perspective on Larry Nassar, about the entire uh, history of sexual abuse in female gymnastics in the U.S., and is about the U.S. 2020 Olympics coming up, and Biles sort of, it's not this... Or the ones that got uh-huh, skipped. The ones that got yeah. skipped, and sort of her uh, preparation for that. It's And it's not necessarily like a, huh, I don't know how to frame it. It's a, it's a heavier story, I guess, is what I'm saying. Like, it's not just like a... Yay, Olympic gold medalist, I'm the best kind of story. It's kind of, it it deals with tougher stuff than that. Is that a fair way to describe it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's more so that there is, this is not like 
necessarily fully rooted in happiness, right? Yeah. This piece is oh. very much intertwined with the Larry Nazar trial uh, and just like I think women's gymnastics. And on also, the whole. sorry, one more bit of framing is that Biles is 23. And so for the Olympics this year, she's already considered old in her field. And then next year, she's going to be 24. And mm -hmm. that's part of the article as well about how it's uncertain for Biles what her performance is going to be like in the 2021 Olympics. So it's like two difficult yeah. things going yeah. on in Biles' life. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the there photos was in comment. relation to that? Uh, yeah. Well, there was a comment by James Robinson on Twitter, and he said, These comments are shocking. They entirely miss the creative direction and storytelling here. The story alongside these is about a dark, challenging time with Nazar, U.S. gymnastics, and racism. And his second tweet was, There's a painful history of photography and video technologies not accommodating non-white skin. See Shirley Cards and Kodak. To assume that that's what's happening here is way off in my view. Leibowitz is an incredible portrait photographer and her choices are intentional. Some also compared the shots to 13th and 14th century depictions of Black Madonna. This I didn't know, I had to look it up. And it refers to statues or paintings in Western Christendom, mm -hmm. did I say that right? Of the blessed Virgin Mary and the infant Jesus, where both figures are depicted as black. The Black Madonna can be found both in Catholic and Orthodox countries. But I, I think to that point about Leibowitz's technical capabilities, I, if you look at some of the previous stuff she's shot, that's a little bit more straightforward. I say that's because it's not black and white. It's like color photography, mm -hmm. right? Uh, if you look at the piece she did for Kendrick Lamar, as well as for the Obama family, both for Vanity Fair, you couldn't argue that these were technically off, well, right? Like, if you look at them, they, they feel yeah. well-lit. They are much more positive, in the, and the, the emotional reaction, I think, is much more positive and one of happiness. I did feel hesitation on forming an opinion on this piece, to be honest, because I did see a lot of Black photographers remarking on these photos and saying that there were better ways to mm -hmm. light and edit Black skin. Uh, light as in the lighting yeah. of it not light as in lightning yeah. and so i was like well i'm not an expert on what that looks like so maybe they're right about the skin tone i i think to that point that's where you'll have to kind of come to a consensus on whether or not there was a creative brief and whether the creative brief was followed well because right? what i was going to say is like so i really if, actually there's a photo in the series i really like not the cover photo but the photo mm -hmm. where it's simone and her hands are on her waist and she's like against this gold background and she's looking down and she doesn't look happy okay like she's mm -hmm. like like her facial expression her uh like body language is all kind of um like somber okay and i actually really like that photo mm -hmm. so i like everything about that photo but i guess i felt hesitant about like what if the skin isn't correct in some kind of i don't yeah. know like way that doesn't portray her but are there any photos in the series where she actually does look happy no i'm not Let's, at all let me i'm ask not you at that. all opposed to the like um i guess where i'm at is that i like the art direction of the the posing of her facial expressions of all the other things and my only hang up was like wait maybe there is something more to be done about skin tone that Leibowitz didn't do and I don't know if that's possible with I'm also not a photographer so I feel like I'm kind of talking about out of my ass a little bit but can you have yeah. that like art direction but also do the skin tone differently no I understand what you're saying but I think the light dictates sort of the outcome right like that's the most critical thing in photography is like your access to light so for me I actually think that if the argument is around the creative direction that's one thing like i think that's mm -hmm. that's very hard to assess whether it's right or wrong because it's very subjective however oh, yeah. i do it understand and i do i do acknowledge and i think it's accurate it's like why did annie Leibowitz shoot it regardless of whether she has a technical know-how which i think she does 100 like i don't mm -hmm. think that's a question i think what you are missing out is that 
when you do not have a black photographer come in, you're you're not providing them the opportunity and platform, right? And that's the most critical thing. Like Andy Leibovitz is someone that's yeah, super famous, yeah, probably yeah. like you know top of the field. And what you've done is you've removed an opportunity for yeah, someone else, yeah, to shoot it. And I think one thing that comes to mind was back, I think 2018. There's a photographer by the name of Tyler Mitchell who shot Beyonce, mm, yeah, right. And I think what was so amazing about this was Tyler Mitchell was kind of on the on the come up anyways but then by virtue of him having this opportunity you just opened up doors to uh a whole new world of photography to a a different type of demographic right here you have like someone that you know grew up skating and suddenly now uh is shooting beyonce like think about how much inspiration and how many doors you're opening for people of that community versus annie Leibowitz, who's like you know middle-aged and older like very famous photographer and i was gonna say like i think that would the questions around annie Leibowitz's technical ability be how do i put this like if if this was shot by uh a non-white photographer like let's say a black photographer shot it and this was the creative direction that was presented because it fit with the narrative and the storyline would this still be a an issue right because mm. i think what's important is you separate the two arguments here there's one around creative direction and there's one around quote unquote the ethics and opportunity mm. and i think the creative direction one i think that's like that's a wash like honestly you just if you don't like it you don't like it that's totally fine but if it fits the story and if you as an editor or writer feels that's that's the art direction to go then you always, you just have to stand mm. by it but i do think the bigger argument is like why are we not providing opportunities just like Vogue provided an opportunity to Tyler Mitchell to shoot Beyonce. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because some of the criticism I saw online was about Simone not looking good, about her not like looking beautiful or gorgeous, and I disagree with that um, assessment. But it is, it's so subjective, right? And also, it's you could look at any photo shoot and say the same thing about whether you think someone looks good in it or not. And I don't think that, huh, it doesn't seem fair to hate on Annie Leibovitz as like a white woman because you don't think that the model looks good, you know? Like, I feel that brings in race where it doesn't need to be. Like, it could be Annie Leibovitz has shot yeah. some white actress, I don't know, any white actress. And you could also say that she doesn't look good, but then it wouldn't be about race it just be about like that photographer and like the styling right when it comes to an opportunity i saw this in your comments again this is like me stealing from your notes where you asked should we relegate ourselves to only asians shooting asians black people shooting black people etc you, you have to include the last one too okay <sighs> fine eugene also wrote cats shooting cats i just left that yeah, off if, if this is the case can Dogs only shoot dogs, cats, you yeah. know what I mean? But the, I pulled this because yeah. it was from the Petapixel yeah. And my piece, bigger issue with um, Annie Leibovitz is not from. that she's a bad photographer, but that she's, like you said, like super legacy, you know, like has so many opportunities, already has had such an amazing career and really does not need another cover to shoot, like ever, honestly. Like she would really could be fine without ever shooting another Vogue cover. And so... I just yeah. think those Vogue covers, like all of those magazine covers should be going to lesser known photographers, like whoever they are, whatever race they are. Even if it was another white woman, like I would prefer it to be like a non well-known photographer who hasn't had that kind of opportunity yet. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the thing that I think is the more important issue here. It's not about the career direction. It's just like opportunity. And what, but I guess back to the creative direction side, I wonder a lot of times art is left up to the devices of the viewer to make their own interpretation. But do you risk something going, you know, sideways if you don't give yourself the opportunity to let people know what you were thinking, let people into your mind? Because what if what happens if Annie Leibovitz was like, hey, like, you know, this shoot was different from the shoot for Obama and Kendrick or whoever because of XYZ and this was the emotion I was trying to mm -hmm. present, right? I just like I, it's kind of shitty when you have to like spell it out but it feels as though there's a lot of 
negative interpretation that happens in our mm-hmm. world today that immediately the default is like this was deliberate she's bad she's yeah. terrible it's like a white uh, colonizer gaze um yeah it's like yeah like and i think that that's one way of looking at it i mean i would also be curious to he- hear like what simone's so take on many it people well. said like, that knowing, like, all was, we can go off of is that she yeah. did retweet her own cover i mean it's vogue so, I mean, she didn't have to, I, I guess. Know. I don't know if it's like in her I mean, you probably would. contract like, or anything. There's no reason why you would not retweet it, yeah. right? I, I accept your argument that like Annie Leibovitz and her team of people, I'm sure she's not alone, know how to edit skin and like know how to do lighting. But I do think that there still is, is an argument there in that for photographers in general, even though I'm not one, that you light different people differently depending on skin color. And so it's not mm-hmm. just about creative and art direction. Like I do think there is a technical aspect about whether we might let our biases show up in imagery. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is not about skin tone, yeah, but like, it's kind of like yeah. how I draw figures. I find myself, I default to drawing thin people and I don't mean to, but it just sort of happens. And so I just try to like course correct of, and I think it's just like, you see, you see imagery a lot that looks a certain way. So even though you are not consciously, you know, thinking one thing or another about people, you wind up like expressing, I guess, like a mainstream perspective. That's, that's my closest equivalent is like, I wind up drawing people overly skinny because that's what I see a lot of rather than like normal sized people with like real muscles so they think there is something yeah. there about learning how to portray people accurately yeah. to how they look there were definitely other ways you could do- you could have done this like imagine if it was just like a very hard hitting light and the rest of the backdrop was super black and super somber like i think that you know looking back i think if the intention was to create this somber sort of um, down temple sort of aesthetic. I don't. I think that's kind of a weird way of describing it, but I, I'm at a loss for words. But basically, the way in which it's it was portrayed, I think there were other options that could have presented her in a more flattering light. Because I agree, it doesn't present her in the most flattering light, but it might be on spec for the creative brief. But it might have just not been executed to... I guess it's just like it was a very risky way of approaching it. I, I weirdly really feel out of my element because we're like dissecting photos. But in the actual Vogue article, there is a photo of her and her family that like. Which also which, doesn't yeah, look great. Which, which also doesn't look great. Like it could be. And it was also shot outside. Like that's one thing too, is that the lighting was deliberately suppressed. I think the reason why I say this is because, you know, it doesn't look like it's it's dark out, but it's like deliberately edited yeah, a certain way. It's kind of strange that photo. Like I don't, I don't know how yeah. to make heads or tails of it. That one. But then the other one, which must also have been shot outside, but on a set looks so much better. Like you can tell, like just even the one where she's doing that kick in the air. Like, I mean yeah, the backdrop yeah. on the left side where you can see the trees, it's actually quite well lit. So this is, yeah. I think a very deliberate creative choice. And, you know, like some people were kind of saying like, oh, my friend is an amateur photographer and took out this photo she took of me and my darker skin tones. But I think the difference is always going to be like how people approach light and how they manipulate it both before they hit the shutter and how they process and post. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I can 100% understand why people don't fuck with this because it's like, it's not the best portrayal of her. And as you mentioned, this is like, the greatest gymnast of all time and this is how you're portraying her like it's almost disrespectful so it unless you're willing to go and understand the nuance and read it to be honest i haven't i haven't read the whole thing yet but it's like without that layer of context i could see how the initial reaction is so negative and i probably should have led with that yeah. earlier but you know now that i've kind of come to terms with understanding you know the severity of this like i think this is more on vogue and annie Leibowitz to like 
know, understand and reveal like their perspective. Well, it's interesting what you're saying um, right now as, as well about like expectation because maybe also people have this expectation of Vogue to be this glamour mag. And so the covers look more like that usually. Like that glamour aspect. I don't know. I just, Even the word Vogue, like that's that's supposed to mean upbeat, like cool, trendy, etc. No, I just, this is so sentimental, but I hope Simone likes it. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's important. I honestly think this is like still a very interesting conversation to have uh, because ultimately it's like, I forgot to add this in because I, but it ended up being like almost perfect timing. But a few days ago before this piece went live or before the backlash happened, I started following this photographer named... Andre Lero, and he posted this thread. It was from 2018, I think. And in the thread, it was basically a tutorial on how to shoot darker skin tones. And I thought it was really interesting, right? Just like, because I, I, I personally am not very good at using, uh, I'll call it mechanical light, just basically using flash strobes and whatnot to shoot. So it's interesting to see how, the, uh, it's done by a professional mm. because generally I've, I don't really shoot a lot in studio. Right. Yeah. So, you know, bringing this back in, I thought it was relevant because at first I was like, Hey, maybe this is like a technical issue, but then again, it's Annie Leibovitz, right? Like I'm, I'm sure it's, well, I would like to think it's not a technical issue, but a creative issue. Yeah. But, um, but, it's interesting. Yeah, like, but obviously like we'll include a link. to I, this. I like that thread a lot. And I think that gets what I was saying about, taking care to edit people and portraying them accurately. And I guess I just say accurately, accurately to like how they look, which is so hard when you don't actually know what someone might look in real life. Like I've never met Simone Biles. I don't know what her skin tone looks in real life. And I just Googled like photos of Simone and there's like every skin tone under the sun. So I don't, I don't know how yeah. I determine like what is accurate or not because I've never actually seen this person in person. But this is this I mean this is great to be conscientious of ourselves, I think. Like like I was saying about subconscious bias to I think even when we edit ourselves as Asian people, like do we edit ourselves to look lighter subconsciously? That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>